Hey gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you again for listening, and I hope that you will share the Lincoln Project podcast and our mission to protect American democracy with your friends, your family, and your colleagues. To get more information, please go to lincolnproject.us and sign up to be a supporter today. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again coming to you all solo for our first Q&A episode of 2023. I'll be answering questions asked by you, the listeners and members of The Lincoln Project community. Rick, Stu, Joe, and I, and everyone at The Lincoln Project love hearing from you all. And as always, if you have a question for us, please send them to podcast at lincolnproject.us. But before we get started, I just want to say that we are recording this the morning of the State of the Union. I'm lucky enough to be here in studio in Washington, D.C. So let's get to it. All right. Got some questions about the Republican House. Stephanie Melrose on Facebook asks, with regards to the debt ceiling, with the games the Republican House is playing and the impact on so many Americans, what can we really expect? Well, Stephanie, this is a good question. And you've answered your own question, which is games. Kevin McCarthy sold out to MAGA to get the speaker's gavel. And one of the things they decided that they were going to do was make a big deal about the debt ceiling. Now, what is the debt ceiling? The debt ceiling is the legal amount of money the United States Treasury is allowed to borrow to pay off debts, not to continue operations, but to pay off the debts we've already incurred. And so if we don't raise that, then we run out of the ability to basically fund government operations, because just like a big company, the government borrows money by selling bonds and then it pays its bills. This is not an unusual thing. I think, remember that when you hear McCarthy talking about how we have to get our fiscal house in order and all this other stuff, remember it was Republicans in 2017 and 2018 that blew a massive hole in government revenue by passing massive tax cuts for the wealthiest and corporations. Now they want to cut even more but this time they want to cut it out of government services, government spending. And there's only really two places you can do that. Social Security, Medicare, what we call entitlements, or defense spending. Everything else, what they call, quote unquote, discretionary spending, is really just scratching the surface of government spending. Now, this is where, Stephanie, I think you see where Republicans are not good at governing, which is McCarthy knows that cutting Social Security, Medicare, or defense spending are killers in a political and electoral sense. So he said, we have to make a deal with the president. And this is why Republicans aren't good at governing, because they have to make choices. They have to have an idea of what they want to do. So right now, I would venture to say, and maybe he hasn't said it out loud, but he's probably thinking in his head, like he's desperately hoping that President Biden or the Senate or someone will come to him with a deal that he can try and broker with the most MAGA members of his conference which will be difficult because that's the other part about the games and the craziness is these people want the chaos. When you make Marjorie Taylor Greene the second most powerful person in the U.S. House of Representatives, you have chosen to get in line with the craziest of the crazy. They don't care. And I think this is the one thing that it's so hard for normal people, right, who are just trying to go about their days to understand. But what's surprising, Stephanie, is how hard it is to get people who should know better, whether or not that's the establishment types, media, financial, political, where I am here inside the Beltway, 
you know, the big banks or the big trade associations, like they just don't believe it's going to happen. Believe it's going to happen and take action accordingly. And this is the one thing that, you know, you can't stress enough is like, will they be crazy? They are crazy. Will they do crazy things? Yes, because crazy does crazy. And so I think that the impact on Americans, we're already facing the most inflation any of us have seen in living memory. And so, you know, things are going to get more expensive because it will cost the government more to borrow, which will drive up interest rates and everything else. And so, as always, we'll have a disproportionate effect on Americans who can afford it the least. And then, Stephanie, put on top of this that McCarthy and his conference want to put on a 30 percent sales tax on top of everything, get rid of the rest of the tax code. I don't think anybody likes paying taxes. I get that. But understand that that would be the most regressive idea you could have. Could I pay 30 percent more for a gallon of milk? I could. Can a lot of people in this country? They can't. And I think that that's the one thing we should never forget, which is this is a mix of plutocracy and ultimate populism, which is they're perfectly willing. Republicans are perfectly willing to hurt the people they rely on as voters for their own good. And we should never let them get away with that. All right. Tatiana George asks, I've lately been seeing on social media an LP-led campaign to target 18 Republican members of Congress who represent districts where Biden won in 2020. I totally get that this strategy is part of an effort to take back those seats in 2024, but that's almost two years away. Are there any immediate benefits to be gained by targeting these 18 now? Tatiana, I'm glad you asked this question. This is the perfect question. I wanted to bring this up. So you're right. 2024 is 20 months away, 18 months away, whatever it is. That's a downstream effect, right? We can discuss the pure electoral politics of this. But why are we focused on these 18? Again, you noted that these are 18 Republican members of Congress who live in districts that Joe Biden won in 2020. Okay, so they are in marginal districts. They won narrowly in 2022. They will either win or lose narrowly in 2024. These are the people who consider themselves, quote unquote, moderates. These are the people who consider themselves, quote unquote, good Republicans. And so what we are asking them to do, and we would praise them if they did it, is to go before a microphone or to put out a statement publicly that says that they will have no part in allowing America to default on its debts. They will not allow Kevin McCarthy and the rest of the MAGA Republican conference to do this to the country to do this to the United States, to do this to the American people. That's what we're asking for. Why are we doing this? Because we know that they are stuck between McCarthy and their voters. Their voters don't want anything to do with a debt ceiling default. They don't want anything to do with the insanity or MAGA or anything like that. But they also know, these members, that they got to go back to the Capitol and they got to look McCarthy and all these other people in the face. We're asking them to make the choice. And this is the choice. It's a simple choice. It's not an easy choice necessarily, but it is a simple choice. Are you going to stand with the American people, shed your label, and vote with Democrats to make sure America doesn't default? Or are you going to do like you did when you voted for Kevin McCarthy for Speaker? Are you going to let MAGA be in charge and watch the debt ceiling collapse and everything that emanates from that? And ultimately, it will be on your head anyway. So, from my perspective, these folks have a fairly straightforward choice to make. They will claim that it's a false choice. They will claim there's no such thing as a quote unquote clean debt ceiling vote. But the truth is, is that people that were in office when Trump was president voted three times to raise the debt ceiling without much of a fuss, right? Only one of these 18 voted to impeach Donald Trump after January 6th. One of them voted not to certify 
the 2020 election. So from my perspective, they might be moderates, but moderate doesn't mean you get to take easy votes when it's easy. It means that if you want to be a leader, you have to take hard votes when it's hard. And that's what we're encouraging these folks to do. You're right. 2024 is a little bit away. It'll be here certainly before we know it. But what we're asking these folks to do is to shed their partisan labels and to do the right thing for the American people. And as I said, Tatiana, if they do that and they're willing to come out publicly, we will praise them to high heaven. Until then, we are going to remind their voters that they have a responsibility. They have a responsibility to tell their member of Congress how they feel about something. And my guess is a lot of these voters, Tatiana, do not like what the Republicans in the U.S. House have on offer. All right. You, John, on Instagram asks, how long will George Santos last? You know, I was just talking to somebody else about that, and I think he could last a while, which means, of course, he'll resign today. Santos is the perfect doppelganger for the Republican Party. He is not at all who or what he says he is. He does not care about anything. He is an inveterate, if not pathological liar. His ignorance is astounding. And I think that there is a little bit of Kevin McCarthy, maybe a lot of Kevin McCarthy that says, look, if the press and everybody else wants to chase George Santos around the halls of Capitol Hill like a rabbit, let them do that because it takes attention off of me and us while we try and go do our bad business. And so I think that Santos could stick around a while. Does that mean he'll win re-election? I don't think so. Right. I think he will be a one term member, even if it's a Republican who takes him out because he'll be an embarrassment to his district and they won't like that. But also McCarthy only has nine votes as a majority. And so he needs every vote he sees. So he's like, great. Santos is one more yes vote on the crazy things I need. And he's a distraction from the other things that I want to go do because I made these promises. So I think he'll last. Now, again, I could be wrong. But this is really about the fortitude of a person who clearly has some significant mental issues being willing to withstand, you know, the onslaught. But again, we're also, you know, an ADHD society. At some point, somebody's going to really stop worrying about George Santos, at least in this moment. His district won't. The people in his district won't. I hope Democrats in that district don't. But he's useful at this point to Kevin McCarthy. So I think he's got, I don't want to say staying power, but I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. All right. Let's move on to 2024. At Carla J. Norton on Twitter asks, DeSantis grabs headlines by criminalizing books, banning African-American studies, and demanding girls' private info. Won't such extreme policies undercut his viability as a presidential candidate? Carla, this is an incredible insight that you've had. Yes, I think that in order for Ron DeSantis or any of these other non-Trump candidates to be successful in a primary, they have to be super MAGA. They have to be super transgressive. They have to trade in their dog whistles for bullhorns to make Republican base voters happy. The issue becomes if they were to get to a general election, and we can talk about that too, is that they've pushed themselves so far into the deep end of the MAGA swimming pool that it would be difficult to come back because you would immediately shed so many swing voters that we call them, right? They're seven to nine percent on the Democratic side you know, maybe 5% in the middle, 7 to 9% on the Republican side, what we call the ban line, that really don't want that in the White House. Because remember, too, is that if he were to win the White House, DeSantis or any of these people, it's not like the MAGA people will let him alone. It's not like they won't expect him to continue with such policies as president of the United States. So I do think it impacts his general election viability 
But I think his viability issues start in a primary, which is I think he's the most overbought stock in American politics at the moment. He's not a particularly good political athlete. And the stuff that he's doing now, you know, you mentioned demanding the minstrel info of high school girls is so far beyond the pale of normal, is so invasive that you're not only rightfully upsetting and concerning young women, but now their parents, too. And as a father of two girls, I can tell you, like, I'd be like, hey, Governor DeSantis, you know, you can stick your menstrual files where the sun don't shine. Like, you're not getting that from my daughter. And if that means that they can't play sports, fine, maybe we'll move. And I would say this, too, with the AP American African-American history stuff, the college board under duress from DeSantis and his people in Florida watered down the curriculum. Don't be appeasers. Appeasement never works. It only encourages them. Now DeSantis said, "Okay, where can I go next? You know, if I were a young African-American athlete, right, college athlete, um, why would I ever go to a public university in the state of Florida? Why would I ever accept a scholarship from Florida State, from the University of Florida, from UCF or Florida Gulf Coast or any of those places? Right. Because they're telling me and the three point four million other African-Americans in Florida that your past doesn't matter and it doesn't exist and you're going to be okay with that. And from my perspective, I think that that is something that is squarely in line with MAGA. I mean, DeSantis is only, you know, a couple of steps short of just deciding to start waving the Confederate battle flag at this point. And so, you know, to answer a short question long-windedly, Carla, yeah, I do think it will have an impact not only on his chances in a general, but in a lot of fronts with Republican candidates, not only for president, but down the ballot in 2024. Okay. Michael on Twitter asks, the latest AP poll claims fewer and fewer voters want Biden to run again, but did not ask, if not Biden, who? Who would be a good choice if Biden does not run? Let me answer this quickly, Michael. Joe Biden is going to run. No Democrat is going to run against him. And he will be the nominee in 2024. And I think that if all things were equal today, he will probably be reelected next year. This is a parlor game, but I think at this point it really doesn't matter. He's the president. He and Dr. Jill Biden get to decide whether or not they're going to run again. And I believe he's going to run again. And I think that, you know, if it is the rematch of Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, I think Joe Biden wins a second time. All right. Kathleen Zale asks, I heard on a recent podcast the idea that Kirsten Sinema may be considering an independent run for president in 2024. Is this really a possibility? And if not her, then is some sort of third party candidate situation something that could actually happen? Well, good. Kathleen, another on the nose question this week. So there was a story out yesterday in Vanity Fair written by a guy named Mark McKinnon, who I go back 20 plus years with to the 2000 Bush campaign. And Mark was the guy who created the ads for George W. Bush. He's a brilliant guy. And he wrote an article about the idea that if it is Trump versus Biden, that a third party option is viable. Let me say this. I have imminent respect for Mark and the things he has done in politics. But on this front, he is absolutely wrong. As someone who has spent a lot of time in the independent and third party space, I can tell you that the math for these things does not add up. It never adds up. Evan McMullen tried it in 2016. You've seen it with Jill Stein or Ralph Nader or the Libertarians. There's never an opportunity, one, for these candidates to get on the ballot in all 50 states 
and even if they did, to ever truly approach 270 electoral votes. We're just too binary a country in this time. Does that mean it could never happen? No. Do I think Americans deserve more choices? I think they do. But I would say that in this moment, if it is a Trump versus Biden matchup and a group like No Labels, who has said that they'll spend $70 million to put a third candidate on the ballot, which would probably be some sort of moderate Republican, will almost guarantee that Trump returns to the White House. And so I think with folks having those kinds of ideas, they have to ask themselves, one, is anybody really asking for this? Because here's the other thing, too, Kathleen, is that everybody's like, yeah, 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 I want another option. I want more parties. But then when they say, would you vote for this person? They say no. You know why? Because the wasted vote problem is very, very powerful for American voters. It's just hard for them to see a viable third option. And so if you want to continue to push forward on this thing and ensure that Donald Trump wins again, that's what you'll do. I think it's a terrible idea. I think it's bad for the country. And I say this as someone who tried to start a third party and does believe that the protection racket that the Republicans and the Democrats have created for themselves, at the state level, is bad for everybody. I'm a proud capitalist, and this is a duopoly, as we used to call it. It's anti-competitive. But at the presidential level, I think that you are absolutely playing with fire. And if you want Trump to win again, keep pushing this stuff forward. Otherwise, you'll say, you know what? Maybe in 2028, we can take a look at this when theoretically Trump and Biden will have moved on from the stage and we have a new era. But for now, it is absolutely an incredibly irresponsible thing to do. All right, let's move on. Ernie Plank asks, aside from the recent tank talk and Zelensky visiting D.C. at the end of last year, it seems like there's been somewhat of a recent lull in coverage and talk about the war in Ukraine, at least in my personal world. I know that we are coming up on the one-year mark. Why does the war continue to be important to the U.S., and what dynamics have changed since it began a year ago? Ernie, this is a great question. What has changed? Uh, let's start there. Remember that I think it was February 24th that Russia invaded. They thought that this was going to be three days. They thought they were going to roll over the Ukrainians in three days, 72 hours. That's how out of whack Vladimir Putin's information was how bad Russian troops performed, but I think most importantly, how bravely and how effectively the Ukrainians have performed. And so now if you look at the map, and I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, the Russians are starting further back than they were a year ago. Why is it important? It is important because this is where the democratic world, and in this case, that's NATO, the United States and our Western European allies, democratic allies, and Eastern European allies, I should say, are going to say aggression won't stand. Russia will not win. Might does not make right in this case. We will do what we need to do to ensure that the Ukrainians are victorious on the battlefield so that ultimately the Russians can go home and decide what they want to do next, but they will leave the rest of the world alone. As I was just saying about another question, Appeasement never works. Anybody who says we can negotiate with Vladimir Putin or we should encourage the Ukrainians to negotiate, negotiate what? Their own oblivion? How can you ask someone to do that? You can't. You cannot ask someone to put their head under the guillotine and say, it's okay. It's all right. I promise you we won't drop the blade. You know what? We know the Russians. This is not new. They do this all the time. They did it in 2014. They did it a year ago. They are inhuman. 
Putin is a butcher. He shoots missiles and rockets and artillery shells into apartment buildings and houses all day, every day. Last year, right before the invasion, we had a conversation with Alex Venman. He and his brother from Ukraine originally, he was the whistleblower on the Ukraine issue with Trump. And he told us this would happen. He said, if Putin doesn't think he can win, he'll destroy the country. He will kill as many people as he can because he is a bloodthirsty dictator who said, if I can't have it, you can't either. And so why is it important for the United States, for the UK, for France, for Germany, for all of our NATO allies to produce as many tanks as we can and get those into the field as quickly as we can? Because we're not just fighting for Ukrainians, although we are. We're not just making sure that the Ukrainians can fight, and they are incredible fighters. We are ensuring that the next time Russia gets an idea about this, the Western alliance says, don't do it. You saw what happened last time. It's going to happen again. And I would also praise Joe Biden at this. As I've said before, guys, you've heard me say this. When Europe looked back a year ago when Russia invaded, Joe Biden said, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. He single-handedly saved the Western Defense Alliance. We should never forget that. And we should do everything we can to ensure that Ukraine can be victorious on the battlefield and the Russians go home. All right, let's move on to some messaging stuff here, guys, some pure politics. Brad on Twitter says, does the Democratic Party do enough to advertise this direction nationally? I see countless billboards pushing the Republican agenda, but I don't see it for the Democratic Party around America. Brad, this is an incredibly insightful question and a, a brilliant observation. You're absolutely right. There's this expression that Democrats want to fall in love and Republicans fall in line. That's normally related to candidates, but it also relates to messaging and to belief. And Republicans will say the same thing every time, a million times. They'll say it anywhere, everywhere, all the time. They'll spend money on it, commit people on the ground to it, whatever it is, right? They stay on message, no matter how insane that message is. And so that is one thing that I think that Democrats do need to do. I think it's really a two-step problem, Brad. One is, what is our overall value proposition for the American people? Not policy A, policy B, policy C, but what's our value proposition? This is a values-based argument. And then go spend the time and the money, not in Washington, not in New York, not in LA, not in San Francisco, but in the places where human beings actually live to communicate that message. And it has to be one that is positive, forward-looking, and inclusive. And you say, but the Democratic Party is inclusive. Okay, yeah, it is. But that means that you need to truly understand where your very diverse coalition lives and meet it where it is. Because the strength, as I have said, of the Democratic Party is its diversity. But that's also where it can find its weakest links because what a consultant in Washington, D.C. believes and what somebody in South Philly believes or what someone in Colorado believes, or someone in New Mexico believes, could be in two entirely different things. And so I think it's understanding where their coalition is, bringing those people along, making them proud Democrats, not reluctant Democrats, not sluggish Democrats, but proud Democrats, and then figuring out how you're going to go get those people who should be Democrats to either sign up again or come back to the party. And so, Brad, I think it's a brilliant observation, and I hope our Democratic friends are listening. Okay. At Adam L.B. Taylor on Twitter asks, Republicans made up a, quote, scandal about a, quote, 
supposed threat from a spy balloon to distract from Biden's record low employment. What will their next distraction be? Well, Adam, wake up tomorrow morning and see whatever it is they're talking about. This is the evil genius of how the MAGA media system works, which is they take two things that don't necessarily have anything to do with one another, a spy balloon and Joe Biden's weakness on China. And Republicans own fear about China because they don't have a lot to stand on either. And they talk about how Joe Biden's a weak leader, how he's in bed with the chai comms and everything else. And they spin it, they spin it, they spin it. So why hasn't he shot it down? Why hasn't he shot it down? Why hasn't he shot it down? Then he shoots it down. Well, he took too long. Trump would have absolutely shot it down if it happened. Oh, it happened three times under Trump's administration. Well, if that's true, then the Pentagon didn't tell him. And those people should be held accountable. So you see, Adam, like you can see how it all plays out, which is they did the same thing when Trump stole the top secret files and, and hid them in a box in a closet in Mar-a-Lago, right? Well, it, they were his to take. Oh, they weren't his to take? Okay, but you know he can declassify anything. Oh, now it's a raid by the deep state. They didn't have a right. And so if you don't care about anything, Adam, if the truth is something to be ignored or avoided, then you can say anything. And that's what you see them do. And that's why whether or not it's critical race theory or the great replacement theory or any of the incredibly asinine and ridiculous things that Tucker Carlson and all the rest of them talk about is because they know they have to keep their people angry. Their people are there in that bubble. They naturally want to leave the bubble because who can stay angry for that long, right, without being totally exhausted? But that's part of the process. That's part of the process of an authoritarian movement. Guys, remember, MAGA is an authoritarian movement. The Republican Party is its political wing. It's the wing that puts candidates up for office. But just as important and certainly more effective a wing is the media wing. Tucker, OAN, Right Side Broadcasting, Dan Bongino, all of these people, they're all as important a part of it because they speak to millions and millions of Americans all day, every day, where they push this stuff and they spin it up. And here's what happens, guys, is that oftentimes this kind of work gets out into the ether and the mainstream media, rather than ignoring the insanity, picks it up because, well, you know, we have to cover both sides. You don't have to cover both sides equally. You can say this is a ridiculous thing. And here's what they said. Oh, by the way, that was a ridiculous thing. But it's very hard for the media itself to break out of sort of the old world we used to live in. All right, gang, listen, as always, I want to thank you for your questions. Please keep them coming. You are the backbone of the Lincoln Project. We cannot say thank you enough. Can I say thank you enough for listening, for believing, for all the work that you have done, that you are doing, and that we will do together between now and November 2024. As always, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Go to LincolnProject.us to sign up there. Go to JoinTheUnion.us to join the field army we're building for 2024. And until then, gang, thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. 
If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.